This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, The Invisible Hook, The Hidden Economics of Pirates, our guest today, Peter T. Leeson, takes us inside the world of late 17th and early 18th century pirates, uncovering the hidden economics behind their notorious, entertaining, and sometimes shocking behavior. Leeson is the BB&T professor for the study of capitalism in the Department of Economics at George Mason University. Peter T. Leeson, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you very much for having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fine. Good weather in Virginia and all that? Well, it's been a little bit rainy, but no complaints. All right. Very good. And how did you get interested in pirates? Is Does Virginia play into the story? Well, only indirectly. I okay. guess, you know, like many uh, young boys, I was very interested in pirates at, at an early age. And the, the first exposure that I had to the Caribbean pirates, which are those that I write about in the book, was actually at the uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> ride at Disney World. <laughs> so that, that's sort of how I got into it. My academic interest didn't be, begin until, you know, much later. Yeah, that's that's a great ride. And it, it's <laughs> it's funny. I, I was always impressed with that one, too. There's always there, there's there's a uh, ambiance to the whole ride that's very seductive. You know, you you want to be a pirate. Exactly. Yeah. And they, they, Take, uh, make tons of booty at the end in the gift shop. <laughs> no, what is it? Is that is that the root of our fascination with pirates? Is this kind of this uh, um, rebel life that they lived and, and didn't care about what happened to them? Sort of is that the is that the? Do you think that is part of the appeal here? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's two major parts to the appeal. The first is the one that you mentioned, which is this idea of these kind of freedom-loving, you know, liberty-living uh, rogues who kind of can do do what they will. And the other part of it is actually, I think, partially aesthetic. The, cord- the sort of uh, the skull and bones imagery and, and the jewels and the gold, it all kind of looks cool, and that yeah. seems to attract people to pirates as well. It's can funny. You, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, can you give us a little history of the, of the Jolly Roger, of the skull and bones? What, what, where does that come from? Absolutely. So... The, the thing, this is one of the things I was the most surprised to learn about pirates when I started digging into the historical record. It turns out that there is, in fact, genuine historical foundation for the Jolly Roger. Um, and you, you see references to it throughout the early 18th century historical records. And the basic idea is this. Pirates were business people, and so they were interested in keeping their costs down. And one of the major costs of being a pirate was having to at least potentially have this violent battle with the merchant ship you were trying to overtake. Mm -hmm. So pirates, you know, far from from fictional portrayals, actually wanted to overtake these ships without violence if possible because it would save them precious booty. They wouldn't damage the prize or face injuries, for example. Mm -hmm. So they needed some way to encourage the surrender of these merchant ships, and one way that they did that was by adopting this ominous uh, black ensign of skull and bones as a way to signal, I talk about in the book, their piratical status to the merchant ships, which basically said to the merchant ships, look, we are outlaw uh, rogues because the symbol was attached with pirates. People knew that those flying underneath the flag were pirates. And therefore, if you resist us, uh, we're probably going to beat you, and when we do, we're going to mercilessly slaughter your crew. And so in that way, the the Jolly Roger emblem uh, encouraged surrender and thus helped pirates enhance their hull. 
So it was really nonviolent to start out with, in a way. You know, they, they, did they did they carry through an awful lot on their uh, on the savagery end of this? If they, they certainly did. I mean, you know, it, it, as you note, it's it's kind of ironic that this this skull and bones emblem is, in fact, I, I liken it in the book to uh, a dove carrying an olive branch, in the sense that it was <laughs> the whole point of it was to try and encourage peaceful surrender, and it worked remarkably well. So. Overwhelmingly, merchant crews surrendered without a fight, saving innocent sailors' lives to their pirate attackers. But, you know, those few uh, merchant ships that dared to resist the pirates nonetheless, the pirates put them to the cutlass and uh, sometimes did much worse. Now, there's a bit of an echo in today's uh, life with the... uh, we, We are all now familiar with the Somali pirates and how they have overtaken many a ship in the uh, in in the waters off the coast of Somalia and essentially have done that without a fight is there is there a parallel there in terms of uh, I, I mean obviously these ships don't they're not flying the this uh, the jolly rogers but they're 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 overtaking them and essentially it's more or less been nonviolent am i is that a am i correct I'm yeah sorry. that's a very fair characterization and there's a strong similarity you know, modern Somali pirates, like their 18th century predecessors, are, again, business people. They're fundamentally economic actors interested in maximizing their profits. And just like it behooved early 18th century pirates, if a merchant crew surrendered to them peacefully at the sign of the, of the Jolly Roger, to not brutalize them as a way to sort of encourage them to give up easily, it also behooves modern Somali pirates not to brutalize the captives that they take. And the reason in this case is that the way that modern pirates derive their revenue is through ransoming hostages and uh, the cargo of the ship. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, a dead hostage fetches no ransom. And so what we find is they have this strong incentive to treat their prisoners well. And, and a number of prisoners, uh, to many surprise, I think, upon being released, have talked about how their pirate pressers basically treated them very civilly. In fact, allowed them to call their friends and family. They were treated well. They were given food uh, and so forth. And, and again, it's not because pirates are good people. It's just because it bolsters the bottom line. Yeah. We're speaking with Peter T. Leeson. The book is The Invisible Hook, The Hidden Economics of Pirates. Now, would you say that, that piracy almost uh, it put an economic, almost a regulation on, on uh, what amounted to, uh, in, within colonialism, a piracy or, or grabbing the booty of nations and shipping it? It was like piracy, I think... Uh, put a, uh, a regulatory uh, system in front of any nation from taking too much. Can, can, can I re- I'm going to sort of rephrase it. Is it the, the, we had sort of a state-sponsored piracy, and then you had sort of the <laughs> grassroots piracy. Is, is that a, would that be a fair way to break this down? Back in yeah, the- definitely. That's right. I mean, in fact, many pirates <laughs> uh, entered their illicit trade by formerly having been privateers. And what privateers were was, was basically just state-sanctioned maritime marauding. It was a kind of legalized and, and government-encouraged piracy, whereby they would hire uh, sailors to basically attack the merchant shipping of enemy nations during times of war. And the problem was that when the war ended, a lot of these guys were jobless, and they had grown accustomed to the rather high wages that privateering could afford them. And so many of them decided to simply ply their trade illegally after the war concluded. So there's definitely a connection between privateering the state-sanctioned side and the illegitimate side. And there's one other connection there, which is that in the late 17th century, rather than viewing pirates as devils, 
many American colonials in particular actually embraced pirates. It was very hard to, to uh, actually fought, get a, convict a, a pirate at his trial because the colonials were uh, reluctant to do so. The reason being that pirates helped them circumvent the Navigation Acts, bringing in imports that uh, Britain had basically made impossible or highly difficult for the colonials to get. So pirates were kind of heroes. Huh. So, so they were able to circumvent the embargo? I assume there was an embargo on the part of the Brits. That's uh, exactly right. They were basically smuggling in prohibited goods and specie, which was another thing. They brought in specie that was difficult to get because of the, uh, the mercantilist policies of Britain. That's huh. Yeah. So, well, so, uh, okay, ahead, let's get into the, the sort of the, <clears throat> the structure, the uh, social structure of, of the pirate back in the 17th and 18th century. They, would, uh, they were involved in practicing a lot of things that were uh, ahead of their time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things, a big theme that I, that I push uh, in the book is this idea that pirates were engaged in progressive behaviors, um, a few of which I'll mention in a moment, but they did so not because they were inherently progressive themselves, but rather, again, because it helped them pursue profit. Mm-hmm. So one of the, you know, the most striking features of pirate organization was the fact that they were democratic, and they were truly, truly democratic. I mean, there was universal suffrage for free members of the pirate crew, um, which this is at a time when, of course, the world's favored system of government is monarchy. So it's, it's very unusual that they adopted this. They adopted it, of course, uh, before Britain in many ways, before the United States. And they also had a system to go along with their democracy of constitutionalism. Um, and in these constitutions, they not only laid out certain rules and regulations that would govern their roguish commonwealth, but also they established what I call meta-rules. They established a system of democratically arrived at um, norms that basically would govern their behavior and laid out the punishments that would go with them. So this system of constitutional democracy even predates the English Bill of Rights, which, of course, is famous in England around 1689 is when this is introduced. Uh, the English Bill of Rights, that is, and, and pirates are doing this stuff in in at least uh, at least the 1670s. So they are very very progressive in in uh, in that sense. Well, we know that Britain was a very maritime oriented society. Do you think that this had some direct impact on 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 how people in Britain within the ruling class thought about uh, the Bill of Rights for their people? Do you think that? Well, that that's a really interesting question. There's there's two sides to this. I think that. The fact that, as you you know, as you as you know correctly, I think that that England is a is a maritime country definitely influences uh, the social organization that emerges on pirate ships. In in the following way, many of these guys were even before they were privateers sailed as merchant sailors, and on 18th century merchant ships, the social organizational structure was exactly the opposite of that we observe on pirates, which is to say, it was it was entirely autocratic. It mirrored the form of government that we had on land and legitimate society. The captain had near dictatorial control and sadly often abused that authority So, to, to the sailors' uh, misfortune. So when these guys entered piracy, they were very, very keen on making sure that they set up a system of democratic checks and balances to prevent their captains from abusing them in the way that they had suffered at merchant captain's hands. And that's in part what drove that structure. So there's definitely an influence coming from the you know legitimate society in that sense towards the way that uh, pirate social organization develops. Mm-hmm. 
the the other part, the interesting part, which which you hinted at too, is what about the connection that possibly could have existed between pirate social organization of constitutional democracy, which is ahead of its time, and possibly even say the founding fathers of uh, of America, let's say, could. Um, and this is something that I've explored, and today, you know, there is absolutely, don't get me wrong, there's absolutely no direct evidence that pirates' system of constitutional democracy was considered at all by the, by the founding fathers in framing our own government. However, I've begun to explore this a bit more lately, and I can tell you this, Thomas Jefferson had a copy of a, uh, 17, a book from the 1720s that described pirates' social organization on his shelf in his library. Oh. Well, so what he is, certainly what is, would have been aware of their system of constitutional democracy mm. and how well it worked. Mm. Uh, what What is that book? Who wrote it? Wait, was it a pirate who wrote it? Is this an inside uh, look at piracy? There's actually a debate about this book. The book is called A General History of the Pirates. That's the shortened name. Oh. Early 18th century books had, had titles that for, <laughs> had many, many lines to them. But in any event, the, the author, uh, this is a pen name, the author is listed as a Captain Charles Johnson. It was originally written in 1724, and a second edition came out in 1726, and then there was a second volume in 1728 uh, and subsequent editions. It was a, a smashing success even in its own time, and historians and literary scholars have debated over the authorship. At one point it was believed that Defoe might be the author of this book, um, but that theory was resoundly defeated in the 1980s by two Defoe scholars who showed that there was not a single shred of documentary evidence to substantiate that claim. Today, the, therefore, the, the sort of historians of piracy are split. Uh, many of them, some of them think or have suggested that it's possible that, that Charles Johnson may have been a pirate himself, although most don't believe that. It seems that the majority think that whomever he was, he was very, very close to pirates because he had access to, which is consistent with the material we find in the archival records, access to court documents, access to contemporary records, and uh, allegedly access to first-hand accounts from pirates themselves in terms of documenting how this whole thing went down. We're speaking with Peter T. Leeson. The book is The Invisible Hook, The Hidden Economics of Pirates. And I, I, who's your favorite pirate? I'll just come out and say, do you, is there is there one pirate out of all your studies that you really uh, uh, hero worship? Um, I, not hero worship, but there's uh -huh. a couple that I like a lot. I mean, there's the most successful pirate who you've got to kind of admire, if nothing else, for how effective he was, is uh, Bartholomew Roberts, Black Bart, uh -huh. uh, who, who operated a bit longer than most pirates and certainly took more vessels. He, he captured an estimated 400-plus ships wow. oh in approx approximately only four years on the account, which oh. is... Uh, he, he was very successful. My wow. God, I admire that's, him. That's one. Let's like one every three, or, three or four days. Exactly. <laughs> Holy. <laughs> Wait, did this guy? Well, that's amazing. Uh, now, was yeah. he a violent man? Is that how he did it, or was he just a, a smart man? He was just a smart man. I mean, you know, of course, he had to resort to violence sometimes, such as when the occasional ship resisted him. But the most successful pirates, it seems, in general, it's not that they were more violent, although they may have been. They were really good with PR. They made, they contended <laughs> they actively worked their image in the press. Yeah. Uh, and what they would do would basically be, you know, to present this image of themselves. Uh, if you resist them, yeah. right, then they would launch into this torturous frenzy. So they wanted to appear violent, conditional on you, on you not going along with them. Uh, which, of course, encouraged you to go along with them, and, and Bart Roberts was very good at that. You're, you're reminding me, and this is completely in the out in the left field here, but the uh, the film The Princess Bride, the uh, the, prince, uh, the, the pirate Robert, 
who yep. uh, it sounds like they may have sort of pirated a little bit of that name from uh, from our Black Bart here. But uh, did he franchise himself? Did he have other ships besides? I mean, he, he, I can't imagine he had one ship going out and capturing four hundred ships in this during this period of time. At, at the height of his power, he kind of operated something like a pirate squadron, which had five hundred and eight crew members, and it was consisted of four ships. There was one major ship. Uh, and then there were four smaller ships that went along with it. So, it was, so yeah, it was more than one. It's interesting, by the way, that you bring up the, the Princess Bride because there's a, 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 a great part there where the Dread Pirate Roberts yeah. makes some, I'm paraphrasing here, makes some remarks, something like, you know, all, uh, w- once word gets out that you're soft, all it is is work, work, work to try and, you know, work on, redevelop your reputation <laughs> yeah, exactly. as, a, as a heinous pirate. Exactly. Well, I'm sorry. totally true. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's what's so funny about the movie is that essentially they just pass down the name from one guy to the next, and he's he's suddenly the dread, dread uh, what I mean, I'm sorry, dread, the dread pirate, dread pirate Robert. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so you said there were there were over 500 people in this pirate squadron wow. of Black Bart's. All right, so pirates were fairly well organized. I mean, this sounds like in in those times, especially a pretty big organization. Yeah, they could be. I mean, that was much well, It was at the high end of the scale. The average early 18th century pirate crew had about 80 crew members, which is large when you compare it to the average early 18th century merchant ship, which had only something like maybe a dozen crew members. Um, so, you know, they, they vastly outnumbered the ships that they were overtaking, and some of them, like, like Roberts, had, you know, uh, several hundred crew members. It wasn't unusual to find a crew that had, you know, had 200, 250. So in order to organize that 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 large group of of watery rascals, that's that's when they resorted to this system of uh, constitutional democracy. And, and it turns out they were they were actually very law abiding, not because they liked rules, but simply because if they hadn't been law abiding, if they couldn't have created honor among thieves, their criminal organization would have broken down. You know, there's 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 this faint echo I, I, that I'm hearing in in uh, your discussion here with uh, organized crime. With the mafia, with the Cosa Nostra, with uh, the, the the crime families around the world, that there is kind of this organized, uh, um, dem- I'd say democracy, mores, social structure, the things that are done and aren't done, and how, how strictly they're enforced. There's sort of a there's an organizing principle here, and uh, and that seems to have I don't know if it started with the pirates, but certainly that tradition seems to have been very strong within the pirates. Oh, absolutely. There's definitely a connection. I'm actually I'm working on a paper at the moment that uh, kind of examines the industrial organization of the Sicilian mafia versus that of Caribbean pirates. And you're right; they're both organized. They both require rules of social order to function effectively to make money. But it's actually, you know, the, the mafia, the mob has a has a very different kind of structure. Still a pronounced structure, but a different type in the sense that. Uh, the mob is very hierarchical. Yeah, you know, there's the kind, you know, the guy at the top, and he controls the people below. Pirates were very, very flat. They were afraid, and they were explicit about not wanting to give too much power to any individual pirate. Um, they, so they, that's why they created this separation of powers. They had this other officer called the quartermaster who checks the captain's authority. Mm. Uh, and there are different economic reasons that, that explain why it is that hierarchy is efficient in the case of the mafia, and this kind of flat democratic structure was efficient in the particular context that Caribbean pirates operated in. So they're both efficient businesses reflecting the context in which they operate. Now, we talked about punishment. Just, uh, we just kind of glossed over it. Uh, but in your book, you say they never made anyone walk a plank. There's no documentation of that. Uh, that's true, I, right? 
It is true. Yeah, that's amazing. How did how did we end up with that mythology? What's walking the plank about? Well, I'm, there is a, a case which I haven't actually read, but a, a pirate historian named David Cordingly uh, refers to a case that he found in the 19th century of some pirates forcing someone to walk the plank. Yeah. So it could come from that. However, I suspect that originally it comes from uh, actually the, the ancient Mediterranean world, in which you had pirates who would attack uh, fellows like Caesar. Caesar was actually at one point taken pre-Caesar, I believe was the time, I'm getting outside my area of expertise here, but he was captured by pirates, and they had, uh, there would be ladders on the sides of ships, and allegedly when you would catch, or, catch some nobles, the pirates would say to them, you know, you're free to leave, just walk, you know, you just take the stairs basically down the side of the ship, which mm-hmm. is, of course, a, a macabre joke, since obviously you would plunge to your death. <laughs> yeah. And some historians think that that might be the origin of the walking the plank myth. Um. We're speaking with uh, Peter T. Leeson. The book is The Invisible Hook, The Hidden Economics of Piracy. And we're running out of time here. I want to wrap up with sort of bringing this story up to date. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, putting aside sort of the brutality of the modern-day pirate, the Somalian uh, pirates that we, we know a little bit about now, how much of what they're doing is actually based in, in some legitimate beef that they have with the way that they're, they're – uh, international or their waters have been treated their country has been treated is there legitimacy some legitimacy to the things that are going on with the somalian pirates today that's a good question and i think the answer is not at all okay they, you know it's again pub pr working on the part of the somali pirates just like their their predecessors they're clever right they they know that they don't want to just say we're in it for the money so they're making these claims about international companies dumping in their waters and, and, and fishing their fish. That may, that may have happened and be happening to a certain extent. I believe that. But the idea that somehow the Somali pirates are avengers of social justice is preposterous. Okay. And I think the strongest piece of evidence to support that is the fact that they haven't taken any of those million-dollar ransoms and donated it to Greenpeace or to any environmental organizations, as far as I know. Okay. Well, that, that's, I just wanted to clear that up, because we're obviously that's in the news, and want to know a little more about it but this is a fascinating book i love stories about history of these sort of choke points in history that that where things happen that uh are completely out of the out of the ordinary out of what we know to what we think we know to be true and this is an example of that so i want to thank you for being here the book is the invisible hook the hidden economics of pirates peter t leeson thank you for being here on weekly signals thank you so much for having me To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.